Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter, and this is Fundamentally Mormon. Today we're going to be continuing on with Chapter 9 of Polygamy in the Bible. We'll be on pages 76 through 100, and we're going to be talking about the Law of Moses. So this is a pretty long chapter, and uh, we'll probably have to do it in two parts, but we're going to start by listening to the reader portion of the program, which is about 50 minutes long. So, pretty long. Um, I might interrupt in between. There's one part where it gives a ton of scriptures. I am going to skip over that, um, especially in the reader program part. But if you want to read it for yourself, I will post the text at Fundamentally Mormon on the the Tumblr app website. So I think it's uh, tumblr.com forward slash Fundamentally Mormon. And then the links to reading this book or this chapter or other books will always be on the Fundamentally Mormon podcast in the description. So you can find it there pretty easy. All right, well, let's get into this. Thank you for listening. The Law of Moses, Chapter 9 of Polygamy in the Bible, pages 76 to 100. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayst observe to do according to all the law, which Moses, my servant, commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayst prosper whithersoever thou goest. Joshua 1, 7. Mosaic Law Justice Picture of a scale and balance in one tray law for men in the other tray law for women. But just wait is his delight. Prove 11 I, Moses is known as the legislator, or that lawgiver, for the house of Israel. This is no small title or honor for he was responsible for governing 77, nearly 4 million people for 40 years. Furthermore, his laws have proved to be a system of jurisprudence that has been a fountain source of much of the world's civilization. At least the most civilized nations of the world honor the greater portion of the laws of Moses. Bible scholars and students agree to the unchangeable nature of those laws. And Irvin Publishing House makes this remarkable but valid statement. Moses had no successor. He was the lawgiver, and the law which was given through him was not to change with the changing generations of men. So and Irvin's Encyclopedia of the Bible 4, 291, spiritual laws, like mathematical or scientific laws, 
simply do not change. God vindicates this by saying that he changes not. God cannot give laws which are constantly changing. There is a blessing, or a result, predicated upon every law, and men cannot achieve the same result or blessing by obedience to several different sets of laws. In the Ten Commandments, far concerned with our attitude toward God, and seek still with our fellow men. Added to these basic ten laws came further laws, statutes and judgments. The book of Leviticus means, law of the priests, and the book of Deuteronomy means, repetition of the law. All of these laws were given to govern men by restraining evil through every conceivable condition in life. All the apostles said that, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, Galans 3.24, and since not many people are brought to Christ, that schoolmaster must continue in force. Also, it is only 78 reasonable that when you have learned geometry, you are not obligated to forget or discard basic mathematics. Only a fool would think that because they believed in Jesus that they are no longer obligated to obey the Ten Commandments and dash or any other commandment. Jesus made this very clear when he said that man shall live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Matt. That's Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Jesus name any laws of God that were no longer morally correct. Many of the moral laws and commandments of God included nearly every conceivable phase of marriage and dash, or shall we say sexual rights and wrongs. Some of these were in dash, marriage to canonized Jude. 7, 3, mothers to sons Lev. 80. I guess I'll just read these, but it'll be easier for me to read it with the abbreviations in the reader program. So, uh, marriage to Canaanites was forbidden in Deuteronomy 7.3. Marriage to sons was forbidden in Leviticus 18 verse 7. Marriage to, uh, from men to daughters is forbidden in Leviticus 18 verse 7. Marriage to... Um, a man being married to his aunt is forbidden in Exodus 6.20, also Numbers 26, verse 59. Sisters and brothers are forbidden from marriage in Leviticus chapter 20, verses 17 through 21. Priests being married to harlots is forbidden in Leviticus 21, verse 7. Priests to divorce women, so priests cannot marry divorced women, Leviticus 21, verse 7. Captured women as wives, new numbers, and that's talked about in Numbers chapter 31, verse 17 through 18. Let's see. Women having two husbands. All right. Women forbidden from having two husbands, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. Priests are not allowed to marry widows Leviticus chapter 21 verse 13 um, priests are not allowed to marry um, oh, I don't know what this one is it says to rape a girl I think that there I know there's punishments for that so anyway that's given in Deuteronomy 22 verse 29 
Marriage with and the tribes. Ugh. That's Exodus. The instructions for that are uh, in Exodus chapter 34, verses 11 through 16. Military marriage exemptions. Deuteronomy 20, verse 7 and 24, verse 5. And basically what that's saying is that um, a young man is not required to go to war if he is newly married for one year, I think it is. So there's instructions on that. There's instructions on the dowries, uh, and that's in Exodus 22, verse 16. There's instructions for the firstborn. That's in Exodus chapter 13, verse 15. Uh, widows in a family. Uh, so that instruction is in Leviticus 22, verse 13. Um, there's instructions for how to check the proof of virginity in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 13 through 21, or what to do if the woman is not a virgin. Carnal slave girls, uh, Leviticus 19, verse 20. Uh, privy member cut off. I don't know what that's about. That's in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. Betrothal promises is in Deuteronomy 20, verse 7. Um, the law of the brother-in-law, which is, I think, where um, the brother, uh, the brother who is married to a woman whose wife has not had any children and the brother dies, is supposed to marry the brother-in-law even if he's not, uh, even if he's already married, and the children that the brother-in-law gives to the wife or to this the wife of the dead brother are to be raised up with his uh with his brother dead brother's family name so let's see here and that if there is no brother that is willing to take on the woman then you have a situation like with uh naomi i think it was with ruth um, where she goes to the nearest kin. So I, I have COVID brain, so I'm trying to, that's a good excuse, COVID brain. I think I'll have that every time I forget from now on. It's a lingering thing, right? <laughs> anyway, um, family property is spoken of in Deuteronomy 21:17. Widow's welfare is spoken of in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. Idolatry is spoken of in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. Also, this whole thing about adultery, what drives me nuts is trying to teach these things to a generation of Gentiles who know what in their culture adultery means, but it doesn't mean the same thing as it means in the Hebrew culture. So it has to do with married women, and I don't want to get into it too much because I've only read it a couple of times. I'm no expert in it, but I do know that adultery in our mind is not adultery in the scriptures. It's different. There's there's differences to it. Anyway, um, the law of circumcision is in Exodus chapter 12. Men's wounded stones... I don't know what that means. 
De- Deuteronomy 23, uh, there's laws prohibiting the lying with animals, and that's in Leviticus 18. Um, there is, uh, there's punishments for lying about one's virginity. Deuteronomy chapter 22. Uh, they talk about midwives in Exodus chapter 1. Whoredom in Leviticus chapter 20. Nakedness in Leviticus chapter 20. Rape is talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Fornication is talked about in the same chapter. Deuteronomy chapter 22. Alright, so that's the list that I was telling you guys about. And um, I don't know what all of them are. I, I don't, but... Um, I guess that would be an interesting study for another time because we're not talking about those things today. We're talking about polygamy in the Bible. So anyway, uh, continuing on with the chapter. Moses, the legislator of Israel, certainly understood all these laws. But is it possible that he did not understand or that he forgot to give any laws pertaining to plural marriages? Absolutely not. Moses gave laws of God, which govern plural marriage, and in some instances commanded it. A few, six, will be considered on the following pages. 1. If you take him another wife. If you take him another wife, her food, her raiment, and her duty of marriage, shall he not diminish?
2. Were there any such punishment imposed if a man take another wife? There is no such condemnation in the Bible. The law and polygamy said that wives and sons of both wives have all the rights and inheritances that are found in any monogamous marriage. See Jude. 21, 15-17, 2. If a man have two wives, if a man have two wives, one beloved and another hated, and they have borne him children, both the beloved and the hated, and if the firstborn son be hers that was hated, then it shall be, when he maketh his sons to inherit that which he hath, that he may not make the son of the beloved firstborn before the son of the hated, which is, 81, indeed the firstborn, but he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn, by giving him a double portion of all that he hath, for he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Jude. 21, 15-17. God begins this statute with, if a man have two wives, as though it might be a common thing, or that it is a situation occurring enough times that there must be regulations concerning it. The Lord presents a situation in which a man has one wife that is beloved and another that is not. Then he explains that the latter or her sons will not lose anything in that marriage. Notice also that God calls them both wives. If he calls them so, then they were so. If it would have been an evil situation, he would not have designated them as wives in a marriage relationship. Also, Notice that if a second wife bore the first son, that son was to inherit the rights of the family even though the first wife had a son afterwards. God recognizes the legitimacy of the children by the second wife just as much as the first. Both the marriage of the second wife and the children of the second wife are divinely approved. It cannot be made any more plain or simple. However, if a man have two wives, Today, the man would probably be called an adulterer and the second wife an adulteress. Our laws would make the man a felon. The courts, both civil and ecclesiastical, would pronounce the second marriage null and void, and the children would be bastardized. People in general raise their hands and howl that it is wickedness and outrageous. Little wonder that Paul, 82, wrote, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. 1 Cor. 3, 19, that which is esteemed as an abomination to man is right before God, and that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God, Luke 16, 15. So said Jesus Christ, so said the laws of Moses. The Lord didn't rebuke the man for having two wives, Partiality was the sin. If he must pay a double portion to the wife that was in his favor, he would think more about his partiality and probably try to remedy it. The Lord was not partial in regard to wives or children. He didn't say the first wife was rightful and the others were illegal or not entitled to inheritance. The Lord wanted the wives and children in polygamy to receive fairly and equally the inheritance and it was why he made this law. It was to include wives in dash living, divorced, 
or their then dashing even those who would yet come into a man's family. It is the duty of a man who takes several wives to impartially look after the welfare of each and dash, and this impartiality applies also to their inherent tribes. This is one of the first laws governing plural marriage that the Lord has established. Martin Luther comments on this law. 13. He sets up the law concerning the two wives and the issue, lest, on account of his affection and love, the husband assign the birthright to the son of the beloved even though he is not the firstborn. The right of primogeniture was the noblest and highest honor of children, for it came about, not by the will of man, as marriage with the captive, but by the blessing of heaven, where there is no respect of 83 persons. Therefore, it should not be transferred arbitrarily or changed according to the caprice of a lover or a loved one. Thus the general principle of this law is, what God gives, man should not remove. This law was quite strict since it prevented cruelty toward the hated wife as well as favoritism toward the beloved one. To put aside vengefulness and partiality is no small virtue. Yes, it is impossible by nature. Therefore, that which lies beyond both the will and the power of malice is squeezed out by law and force. Here you see, therefore, that polygamy is permitted by law. Luther's Works 9 121. Thus, the Mosaic laws of God did not punish men for taking more than one wife, but rather God gave these laws to instruct men on how to divide their gifts, inheritances and their attentions among their wives and children. Could anyone think for a moment that God would give such laws to stop polygamy? Such a situation would be like a legislator who made laws to prevent stealing by instructing thieves on how they should divide their loot. If God wanted to stop polygamy, he never would have made laws such as these. Some men, by nature, were more favorable to certain wives than others. In some cases, however, it might not be so much the man's fault as the woman's for some women may be kind, while others are critical, one obedient, another unruly, one generous, but another greedy, etc., yet God makes this a general rule without any optional conditions. The man has an obligation in his plural marriage, and God does not, 84, want any favoritism. It was not an easy obligation, as we learn in the case of some great men such as Jacob, of Jacob's two wives, one was beloved and the other was not. Leah is described as tender-eyed and was contrasted in appearance by her sister, Rachel, who was beautiful to behold. Now Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah and apparently let it be known because the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Genesis 29, 31, because of this. The Lord showed favor to Leah more than Rachel, because he blessed her with four sons. But Rachel remained barren for many years. There is evidence of Leah's craving for Jacob's love, and she had to bargain with Rachel for the privilege of lying with her own husband. Genesis 30, 14-18, but she managed to obtain six sons and one daughter. 
Jacob once showed his favoritism by putting Leah ahead of Rachel in the caravan to keep Rachel away from Esau whom he feared. But perhaps it balanced out in the end. Possibly the burial of the two wives of Jacob is more significant than anything else. Rachel, whom he had seemingly favored throughout his life, was buried in a tomb near Bethlehem. The place is still marked today. But Leah was buried in the family burial site at Machpelah, where Jacob himself chose to be buried. Dr. Irvin's Encyclopedia of the Bible, 3, 900. Jacob may have favored Rachel more than Leah, so God favored Leah the most in respect to her children. Judah, her fourth son, was the one through whom David and Christ were born. Yet we should not, 85, fail to mention that Rachel had Joseph and Benjamin, showing that God did honor both wives in their plural marriage to Jacob, by giving them such choice sons. 3. Marriage to a dead brother's widow, if brethren dwell together, and one of them die, and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger, the husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife, and perform the duty of the husband's brother unto her. And it shall be, that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. Jude 25, 5-6, this letter of marriage and dash so termed by the Jews and dash was a very important law in Israel, and there were several reasons for its practice. A brother marrying the widow of his dead brother was one of the ancient customs of Israel. The Mosaic Law, Jude. 25, 5-10, provided for the possibility and necessity at the death of one brother, to have his childless wife married one of the surviving brothers. The first son of this union was to be regarded as the son of the dead brother. The purpose of the lever of marriage was 1. To prevent the name of the dead brother from being put out of Israel. Jude 25, 6, 2 restore the name of the dead to his inheritance. Ruth 4, 5, 86, 3. To keep the family property intact. The Nervin Engle. A Bible, 4, 99. If the brother of the deceased was already married, it did not relieve him from the responsibility of complying with that law. He was under the direct order of God to marry the widow of his brother to raise up a son to him, that his name be not put out of Israel. The man didn't have much choice in the matter if he honored God's law. But suppose that the surviving brother had no wife at the time his brother died? The law said he must marry his brother's widow anyway and raise up a son for the inheritance of his brother. But what about his own posterity and his own name? Under this principle, he was also free to marry another wife, or wives, and raise up another family in addition. So this law of plural marriage was instituted so in both situations children could perpetuate their names in Israel. It is plain to see that this law was general in its application. 
it was not limited to unmarried men. It does not say her husband's brother should take her to wife if he has no wife. There is no or any other exemption. It included both married and unmarried men. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give accounts of the Savior and the Sadducees speaking of this statute, but none of them gave any statement about changing or avoiding it. The foremost Bible authority, Dr. Adam Clark, like most ministers of today, completely skipped over this text in his commentary on the Bible. 87. The continuation of a man's name and his posterity was considered a great blessing. David said, The children of thy less than the Lord's greater than servants shall continue, and their seed shall be established before thee. Psalm 102. 28. To have that chain of posterity broken by death was a calamity. Therefore, the Lord made provisions in such conditions. If the deceased had no brother living, it then fell upon the nearest relative to marry the widow. An example of this is given in the book of Ruth. The husband was dead, and she had no children, nor any brother to marry her. Boaz, the husband's uncle, took Ruth for his wife in order to comply with this law. The scriptures said it was done to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren, and from the gate of his place. Ruth 4.10 Remember that Boaz and Ruth became the great-grandparents of David. The ancient patriarchs before Moses also understood and practiced this law. For example, Judah had three sons named Asher, Onan, and Shelah. He married a girl named Tamar, but because of his wickedness, he died in his youth without a child. The father, Judah, knew the law of God in this regard, and explained it to his son, Onan. And Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife, and marry her, and raise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his, lest then he married her but refused to. Greater then give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. Genesis 38, 8-10, 88, at this time, Shelah was too young to marry Tama, so Judah required her to remain a widow in her father's house until Shelah was grown. This was the law of God among the patriarchs, even before it was repeated by Moses. More on Judah and Tamar is discussed later in this chapter. So God commanded the living brother to marry the widow of his deceased brother. Would God command his people in this law to enter polygamy if it were wrong, and then punish them for doing it? How peculiar to believe that men were told they would be punished if they did not keep this law and then cursed them because they did keep it. This is a clear and undisputed law that sanctioned polygamy. 4. Marriage to foreign women, when thou goest forth to war against shine enemies, and the Lord thy God hath delivered them into shine hands, and thou hast taken them captive, and seest among the captives a beautiful woman, and hast a desire unto her, that thou wouldest have her to thy wife. Then thou shalt bring her home to thine house, 
and she shall shave her head and clear her nails, and she shall put the raiment of her captivity from off her, and shall remain in thine house, and the way of her father and her mother a full month, and after that thou shalt go in unto her, and be her husband, and she shall be thy wife. Jude 21, 10-13 It is quickly perceived that when this statute was given, it did not say if an unmarried man goes to 89, war. It merely said, when thou goest forth to war. This is a general mandate which is applicable to all the men in Israel. Similarly, it is the language of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, etc. This was a law given to a nation that practiced monogamy and polygamy and applied both to married and unmarried men. The only conditions upon which such a marriage was predicated was that she must shave her head, pare her nails, and mourn for a month. Then whoever had taken her as a captive was free to marry her. Also notice that whoever chose her for a wife was to bring her home to thine house, which seems like the man might already have a home of his own. If anything, this law seemed to be bent more toward married men than it did the single ones, because most of the soldiers in ancient Israel were married men. 5. Additional wives as the spoils of war now therefore kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman that hath known man by lying with him. But all the women children, that have not known a man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. Num. 31, 17-18 with this law the Lord made further provisions for polygamy among his people. This was a law allowing women who were taken as the spoils of war to be wives to the Israelites. One instance of it was a war against the Midianites. Moses told the men that, of every tribe a thousand, throughout all the tribes of Israel, shall be sent to war. This meant that 12,000 able-bodied men went to war against that 90 Midianites with instructions from the Lord that they would save only the women children that have not known a man by lying with him. After the destruction of this battle, there were 32,000 women taken as new wives. Benham. 31, 35, these Israelites took back home an average of nearly three wives each. This was the law and the Lord in Dash and this was only one battle. It happened on many other occasions. There is little doubt that the Lord approved of polygamy when he gave this law for people that already had a surplus of women. This was a law generally practiced by the Lord's people so they could increase their numbers and dominions. This law was to be observed in their battles with all other nations, not just the Midianites. For example, the Lord repeated it by saying, When thou comest nigh unto a city to fight against it, then proclaim peace unto it. And if it will make no peace with thee, but will make war against thee, then thou shalt besiege it, and when the Lord thy God hath delivered it into thine hands, thou shalt smite every male thereof with the edge of the sword, but the women, and the little ones, and the cattle, and all that is in the city, even all the spoil thereof shalt thou take unto thyself. Jute 20, 
10, 12-14, Martin Luther observed that. Here you see how the law permitted soldiers not only to have several wives, but even, where love demanded, the Gentile, 91, woman captured in war. For when he describes them as soldiers not newly married, it is plain that almost all the husbands who fought in the war were married no less than one year, and that these married soldiers were also allowed to take a Gentile woman to wife. What is more, if she proved unsatisfactory, it was lawful to dismiss her. But she was free to marry another man, and she could not be sold or made a prostitute. For it is a violation of civil uprightness to sell or prostitute one who has been humiliated. Luther's works, Vol. 9, 210. It is very evident that these relics obeyed this law and were able to multiply and replenish their numbers to great proportions. For instance, we read that when Moses was commanded to take the census of all males from 20 years and up to go to war, Benham. 1, 2-3, the number was 603,550. 146, the whole nation consisted of nearly 3 million people, but out of this number there were only 22,273 who were first-born children. No. 343, this would mean that each woman would have had 39 children. If each man had four or five wives, then it would be possible, because as Jacob had four wives, yet only Reuben was called the firstborn. If each wife had only five children, then we are brought to the conclusion that each man must have had upwards of nearly eight wives. This can be reasonable only on the principle that the Israelites were increasing their numbers upon the principle of plural marriages obtained through the ravages of war and obedience to this law as commanded by the Lord. 92. Why did the Lord command soldiers to preserve the females and not the males? because the Lord wanted his people to have a plurality of wives, so they could raise up a numerous posterity quickly, by men who would teach them the laws of God. These women brought into Israel, and into the families of polygamists, were subject to the rules of Israel. They soon learned that such a man was worthy of respect and honor. It did not take them very long to appreciate good men even though they had been brought into polygamy by such catastrophic conditions. Israel, then, if they would become righteous, would be blessed with every conceivable blessing. But if not, then they, too, would suffer or even be destroyed. Moses warned them that if they became corrupt, that they would suffer every conceivable curse that God could bring upon them. And it shall come to pass, that if the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good, and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you, and to bring you to naught. Jude 28.63 Here, then, we see that righteousness causes the Lord to multiply people, but the wicked he will destroy. The wicked practice birth control, abortion, sexual promiscuity and whoredom. The true purpose of sex is for multiplying and replenishing the earth. But now every vile, lustful and wicked practice is promoted, 
children are usually the result of an accident rather than intent and are often thrown into orphanages or aborted. The result is a society of irreverent and wicked people, suitable for destruction. 93. If parents would send their children to some distant land to stay for several years, what sort of people would they want to care for their children? Would they want them to be sent into the homes of righteous men who would properly care for them, teaching them good conduct and respect for God? Isn't it only reasonable to send them to a friend rather than an enemy? Wouldn't they rather trust a dozen children to good man, rather than give one child to a wicked man? If earthly parents can feel such concern for their children, how much greater are the concerns of our Heavenly Father? What must he feel about his children who are born into families who do not honor him, nor believe in righteousness nor the laws which he has given? No wonder the Lord gave this law for taking women out of the camps of the wicked and giving them to more honorable men. No wonder God provided this regulation as a part of his law for plural marriage. 6. Common or natural law of marriage, and if a man entice a maid that is not betrothed, and lie with her, he shall surely endow her to be his wife. X. 22.16. If a man find a damsel that is a virgin, which is not betrothed, and lay hold on her, and lie with her, and they be found, then the man that lay with her shall give unto ninety-four the damsel's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife. Because he hath humbled her, he may not put her away all his days. Jude. 22.28-29. This was a general law which applied to single men, monogamists, and polygamists. If anyone thinks that it is applicable only to single men, where does it say that? All were bound to comply with this law. In some eases it demanded polygamy, making the man responsible for her as a wife even if he already had one or more. Any man who took the virtue of a woman is under the legal obligation to accept her as a wife and he may not put her away all his days. If this law was put into force today, it would immediately destroy all the houses of Ulfami in the country. This was, in some instances, an open door for a woman to gain a man for her husband if she enticed him to cohabitation. This was done even before Moses received this law, a prime example being the case of Judah and Tamar and Dash as mentioned previously in this chapter under marriage to a dead brother's widow. Poor Tamar was having a difficult time getting a family, so she disguised herself and enticed Judah into a family situation by getting pregnant by him. She had twins born to her, and Judah acknowledged that she hath been more righteous than I because that I gave her not a shilla my son. Genesis 38, 26, one of these sons born to Judah and Tamar was Pharez, who was in the direct line of the ancestry of David, and hence the lineage of Christ. See Matt. 1, 3, etc. 95, this is that natural law of consent, or cohabitational marriage law against which no legislation ration can be made. 
it is mutual consent and becomes the lawful state of marriage from which the man cannot back out or divorce the woman. By this law, no man could humble a girl and then abandon her. By our present laws, a man must seduce 100 girls and abandon them all without any penalty. By the laws of God, prostitution is impossible because the carnal knowledge relationship between the man and woman is the law of being, one flesh, and they are bound in the marriage relationship by that union. Any child born of that union is justified to call the man his father and the woman his mother, whether or not a civil authority pronounced them man and wife. Under these ancient laws of God, no man would dare to seduce a girl and abandon her, any more than he would dare to murder her. The penalty could be the same. When a woman, or virgin, bestows her own person to a man of her choice, with intent to be his, or if she is enticed, or even seduced, in the language of the scripture, she is a legal wife of that man from that moment. He, then, is bound by the law to maintain, protect, and provide for her as best he can, and he cannot put her away for the rest of his life. She is stamped by the law as his wife. This put the law and power into a woman's hands to make the man do justice and to bear his rightful responsibilities and obligations. This is the needed security and recompense which women are rightfully due. 96. In the scriptures there are very few, if any, instances where a ceremonial service was read over the marriages of men and women. We do have some information that in a few instances men of the priesthood did so, confirming the union of marriage, but in most cases it was not their privilege. The scriptures do not give any particular name for the relationship of husband and wife in the original Hebrew or Greek, but rather a man and his woman. Whereas the scripture has no specific name for the relation, as husband and wife and dash but a man and his woman. When a man took a virgin, she became his woman, that is his property, not by any outward ceremony, but by the surrendering her person into his possession. This, either anticipatively by promise or betrothing, or actually by carnal knowledge, when a betrothing or espousal went before. This, and this only, made them one flesh and dash listed, and it ever must have the same effect in the sight of God, for he changeth not. Tell of Tara, Rev. Martin Madden, 1, 329. So, when a man took a virgin to be his wife, she became his woman, not by civil ceremony, a magistrate certificate, or national authorization. It was by the surrendering of her person into his possession. This was either by some promise, priesthood sanction, betrothal, or by carnal knowledge. She became, willfully and obediently, his woman, and, in the act of 97, cohabitation, she becomes, one flesh, with him. This was as binding as any certificate, or words upon a printed page, or sanctioned by some court of legal term. Paul the Apostle understood this doctrine, and the preponderant weight of awesome consequence, if it were not obeyed. For instance, he said, what? Know not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? 
The two, said he, shall be one flesh. I call. 6, 16. This is why he was preaching so tenaciously against fornication with harlots and dash becoming one flesh. With harlots is adulteration of the flesh. This is a defilement of the body, or that temple of God. And said he, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. One call. 3.17 Paul was teaching these laws of Moses. If a man should entice more than one maid, they would both be his wives, and he would bear the responsibility of being husband to them both. We read that Jacob had a big feast after seven years of working for Rachel. But in the evening Laban took Leah his daughter, and brought her to him. And he went in unto her. And it came to pass, that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Genesis 29, 23, 25. There was no way that he could back out of that marriage situation, even though it was a deception. But it all turned out well in the end because Laban gave him Rachel his daughter to wife also, making him legally a polygamist. 98. Martin Luther, commenting on this law, wrote, But if a man had already become betrothed to one woman publicly and thus entered into a true marriage, even having taken the bride to his house, and it happened that he had lain with another woman before or during the time when the secret betrothal existed, or even if he lay with her after the public wedding, he could keep the woman with whom he had lain together with his public bride or wife. Yet this lying together in secret in anticipation of betrothal cannot be reckoned as whoredom, for it takes place in the name and with the intention of marriage, which spirit, intention, or name whoredom does not have. Therefore there is a great difference between whoredom and lying together in secret with the intention of betrothed marriage. Luther's works, 46, 291, 293. If a woman had promiscuous intercourse with different men, any resulting child became spurious, and she was classed as an adulteress and her child was classed as a bastard. C. Jude. 23, 2. This was different from a maid who was enticed by a man who was under the law to endow her to be his wife, whether she had a child from that relationship or afterwards. Thus, the difference between whoredom or adultery and this law of marriage called common law. 99. This statute was observed for many centuries. Two other examples occurred in the lives of David and also his daughter, Tamar. God did not allow David to put Bathsheba away. This act of cohabitation made begging incomplete and indissoluble. Neither did David want to put her away. He, therefore, acknowledged her as a legal wife. The rape of Tamar by Amnon, David's son, was nearly as devastating a crime and as unpardonable as her abandonment. After Amnon had raped her, he commanded her to go. She refused and properly said, This evil in sending me away is greater than the other. 2 Sam 
1316, it was the forceful rape, humiliation and then adding the insult of divorce and dash all within the hour and dash that broke her heart. These were the laws of God. Any of the laws which brought men into polygamy in the days of Abraham were the same in the days of Moses. They were the same in the days of Jesus Christ, and they should be the same in the days of Ronald Reagan, or all who follow afterwards. They are unchangeable and eternal. But with man-made laws, a principle could be legal in Greece but illegal in Rome. Ten centuries later they could be legal in Germany, but illegal in England. Then again, they could be legal in the United States, and 25 years later they could be illegal in the same court. God remains constant with his laws, but man is fickle in his. 100. If God tolerated, allowed, or winked at men taking more wives than one, because they lived in an inferior time, a backward society, or because they lacked sufficient light to have the gospel, why then did God punish with death the women who decided to have more than one husband? Think this over. The world loves its own laws, but usually hates the laws of God. See John 15:19 and Mark 7, 9. As the world goes on and progress, it seems to go further away from the laws of God. Our progress leads to divorce, prostitution, widows, orphans, whoredom, unnatural affections and finally destruction. The papist with his mass book, the Turk with his Quran, the Persian with his Zen book, the Hindu with Krishna, the Chinaman with Confucianism and Dash are some of the devices that draw men away from the laws that God gave to Moses. It is time to make another examination into the laws that God has given to Moses, and the reasons why they were given. 101, Chapter 10, David, Musician, Soldier, King and Polygamist. Okay, so, <clears throat> that's the end of Chapter 9. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. The phone lines are now open for questions and comments. Also, there's a chat room at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentallymormon. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentallymormon where we will go over, uh, well, that's a chat room. If you have any questions or comments, we'll try to monitor that uh, as well as we go through the reading portion of this program. So thank you for listening. Call in if you want. Let's get into the reading. Here we go. Okay, you guys uh, got your phones unmuted? Yeah. Hi. Hi. Is mom home? Uh, I don't think so. Nope, I'm not. She's here though. Uh, like she's on I'm the radio almost, show. <laughs> I'm almost to the sunny side, Deb. So, could you guys hear the recording very well? Because, like, on my phone, it no. was really. Yeah, and I don't yeah, know why was... that is. Cause it was loud it was for a little bit, then all of a sudden it just was like not be. 
And then I was like, I know. turn it up on you here. I know, like, and I didn't change anything when I was recording it. So, like, it was loud, and then I was like, okay, that's fine. And it didn't change on the, you know, the recording. When I was recording, I didn't mess with anything. So, in my ears, it's really it's really hard to understand it. Anyway, Emmett, are you ready to read? Uh, I think so. Okay, well, nine, I'm going into eight, the show. So. I, I will be there. I will be there in three minutes. So. Oh, okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. I can hear you. Hi. Uh, yeah, yeah, and okay, I can hear you too. I am uh, back okay. at work, everyone. Um, I had some. Stuff come out of my ears last night. It looked like dried, like I don't know. It was like reddish brown. It looked like blood, but it wasn't. It was like way liquidy. Anyway, so you I'm not probably dizzy check anymore. A <laughs> eh, I'm not dizzy anymore. So um, I felt like, well, you know what? I might be a little bit sick, but I'm not dizzy, so I'm gonna go drive a truck. So. And I am very happy to be back in the truck. I hate cool. not driving truck. <laughs> I just would like it if I didn't drive so many hours a week. But, oh, well, that's, that is the profession. So, way it goes. Anyway, um, I'm just glad that they limit my hours to 70 hours in an eight-day period. So that's nice. And they give me a 34-hour reset, so I can uh, reset my logbook every week and go for another 70. So it works. Cool. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Back in the old days. (laughs) I don't even want to talk about my renegade driving career. <laughs> it was pretty bad. I've only Especially heard when I worked in the oil field. But it wasn't good. <laughs> yeah, I used to think, oh, I wonder how far I can push myself to go today. And I won't talk about that too much. But when I was in the oil field, we weren't under DOT law. And uh, we used to work 18 to 20 hours a day and get four to six hours off. And we do that six days on and we get three days off. But there were days when we had like 36-hour days when I was on an emergency. So in my title, and Kim can confer, I guess, um, my title was uh, Oil Field Emergency Management which basically meant I did glorify, I was a glorified, um, like, craft work guy up all the way up until they, they had an emergency. And then I was on it, and, uh, and I was on it until, uh, until I was relieved. So, yeah, and some of my days were like days and a half. <laughs> so, anyway... Kim, where have you been all this time? I was getting all the things checked off the list. (laughs) 
you know, okay. like all the things that everybody needed for me to go and get really quickly. And yep, and they have those two little ones with me, which makes it harder to do. But we did it. We survived. <laughs> okay. All right. Well. Okay, well, go ahead and mute yourself, and then I'll mute myself, Emma, you can read. Uh, by the way, everyone, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. And uh, if you do call in, I'll bring you into a screening room and ask you what your question or comment is, and then you can choose whether or not you want to go live. But uh, this, this might be a two-parter because that first part was really long, and I don't think... Emmett's going to get through it. Maybe Kim can. It's only 25 pages. I'll be fine. No, I can do it. I feel like what should happen is I'm pulling into the driveway, and I feel like um, Emmett should come and help get all the stuff out, and then I should be reading. I feel like Kim, that I would do a good job with that. Well, then you need to go in before yep. With my whatever. Headset. Anyway. <laughs> Okay, yeah. uh, this too. I am taking a load taking a awesome. load to Castledale. <laughs> so, and then I'm going back to the mine after that, to Lila. So, that's what's going on with me. Alright, well, I'll mute myself. You guys figure it out. I just need somebody to read. Okay. So, Emmett, you start reading, and then Mom will figure it out, I guess. Yeah, I'll come take over. Okay. okay. All right. All right. Go ahead, Emmett. Okay, Chapter 8, or Chapter 9, wrong chapter. <laughs> the Law of Moses. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee, turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Joshua, uh, chapter 1, verse 7. I think that's how Joshua is. And then there's like this little thing that's like a scale. Uh, yeah, it says Mosaic Law Justice. And then uh, a just weight is his delight. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1. And it's like this. So in the book, Ensign to the Nations, uh, which is what I'm reading Polygamy in the Bible out of, there's a bunch of little diagrams and stuff. There's like yeah, this little scale. Nobody is going to be able it. to see them unless they have the book, Emmett. And most people yeah. are going to be reading it online, so they're not going to be able to see what you're talking about. So just go ahead and read the text. All right, continuing on. <laughs> Moses is known as the legislator or the lawgiver for the house of Israel. There is no, or this is no small title or honor, for he was responsible for governing nearly four million people for forty years. That's a lot of people. Furthermore, his laws have proved to be a system of uh, jurisprudence that has been a fountain source of much of the world's civilization at least the most civilized nations of the world who, um, or no, I said who, at least the most civilized nations of the world honor the, great portion, the greater portion of the laws of Moses. 
Bible, or Bible scholars and students agree to the unchangeable nature of those laws. Zondervan Publishing House makes this remarkable but valid statement. Moses had no successor. He was the lawgiver, and the law which was given through him was not to change with the changing generations of men. Zondervan's Encyclopedia of the Bible, chapter 4, or no, volume 4, page 291. Spiritual laws like Matamat or mathematical or scientific laws, simply do not change. God vindicates this by saying he changes not. God cannot give laws which are constantly changing. There is a blessing or a result predicated upon every law, and men cannot achieve the same result or blessing by obedience to several different sets of laws. In the Ten Commandments, four are concerned with our attitude towards God, and six deal with our fellow men. Added to these basic ten laws came further laws, statutes, and judgments. The book of Leviticus means law of the priests, and the book of Deuteronomy means repetition of the law. All of these laws were given to govern men by restraining evil through every conceivable condition in life. Paul the Apostle said that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Uh... Oh, I don't remember. I think it's Galatians. I don't remember that one. G-A-L, chapter 3, verse 24. And yeah, since that's not many Galatians. people. Yeah, I don't remember the abbreviations for a few of them. Um, okay. Continuing on. And since not many people are brought to Christ, that schoolmaster must continue in force. Also, it is only reasonable that when you have learned geometry, you are not obligated to forget or discard basic mathematics. Only a fool would think that because they believed in Jesus that they are no longer obligated to obey the Ten Commandments or any other commandments. Jesus made this very clear when he said, Man shall live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Nowhere did Jesus name any laws of God that were no longer morally correct. Many of the moral laws and commandments of God included nearly every conceivable phase of marriage or shall we say sexual rights and wrongs? Um, do you want me to read like that whole uh, list of things, Dad? No, you can skip that. I mean, I already covered it in the other part of the okay. program. So, yeah, just jump okay, over so, that part. Okay, so some of these were, and then there's a whole list of things. And now we're on page 79. Moses, the legislator of Israel, certainly understood all these laws. But is it possible that he did not understand or that he, he forgot to give any laws pertaining to plural marriages? Absolutely not. Moses gave the laws of God, which governed plural marriage, and in some instances commanded it. A few, six, will be considered on the following pages. Number one, if he take him another wife, um, if he take him another wife, her food, her raiment, and her duty of marriage... Shall he not diminish? Exodus chapter 21, verse 10. The Lord did not say that an Israelite should not take another wife, and he did not advocate divorcing them. He did not say that taking another wife was a sin. He did not say that if he took another wife, he should be punished. And he... <coughs> Hold on. <laughs> oh, sorry, I had to cough really bad right in the middle of that. Um, he did not say 
you have a mute uh-huh. button on your headset. You don't need to throw your headset off the cost. It's, it's a mute button. It's a pop button on the earphone side. Okay. Okay. Continuing on. He did not say that if he took another wife, he should be punished, and he did not say that there was a law against such a thing. He did say, her duty of marriage shall he not diminish. God is saying that if a man take another wife, he should provide her with food, clothes, and needs in all respects and duties of marriage, as he would with the first. And we're on page 80. The Lord is making considerations for the polygamous or plural wife in a marriage situation. It was not an illicit or immortal... Uh, a moral escapade outside of his marriage with the first wife. It was a marriage with divine acceptance. God forbids any neglect of either wife and commands the man to continue in the duties of marriage if he take him another wife. Now consider the opposite situation and see how the Lord's laws regulates that. If a woman lives with another man while she is still living with her husband, she is called an adulterer. See Leviticus uh, chapter 20, verses 10 to 12. And so is the man who uh, cohabits with her. When this situation was discovered, they were both stoned to death. See Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. Furthermore, if there were any children from that union, they were to be excommunicated from the congregation of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 2. Where is there any such punishment imposed if a man take another wife? There is no such condemnation in the Bible. The law of polygamy says that wives and sons of both wives have all the rights and inheritances that are found in any monogamous marriage. See Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 15 to 17. And now we're on to number two. Dad, did you have anything to say? No, you're doing a good job. I'm about to get to the spur, so I'm going to be out of the truck for a little bit. So, um, do you know what happened to Mom? Like, her phone call dropped. You got the studio open? Yeah, I think she's inside even. I got it up on the computer, which is awesome, because that's working now. (laughs) Yay. Okay, well, I'm going to mute myself. And, uh, yeah, just go ahead. Like... The whole reason we're going over these things is because there's a whole bunch of people that believe that polygamy is an abomination because they misread Jacob chapter 2 in the Book of Mormon. And, um, yeah, well, there is an abomination that has to do with multiplying of wives or kings, but it doesn't have to do with polygamy. And polygamy and multiplying wives are two separate things, which I've talked about. We're going to go over that go over that, you know, with the, uh, you know, in this chapter, we'll talk about those things. So, and then the other thing too, like the whole thing about, you know, you don't do away with the basics of math when you get into a higher level of math. And it's the same thing with, with the, uh, with the law, the law of Moses is still in effect. I know a lot of people don't like that, but, uh, Sorry, I don't like it. That's not my problem. That's your problem. Um, Jesus said, I do not come to do away with the law, not one jot or tittle, until all things be fulfilled. And, uh, well, they're not all fulfilled yet. 
And furthermore, when Jesus said, I come to fulfill the law, that means he come to live it perfectly, not do away with it. So anyway, um, you know, the disciples continued to uh, live God's laws. Like even the fact that Paul went and did sacrifice in the temple with like six or seven other men, because people were like, oh, Paul's against the law. And he was like trying to prove himself that he wasn't. So. All right, well, Mom's on. Let me bring her line up. Well, it's doing its thinking, so I don't know. Maybe you can do it on your end. Oh, are you on? Uh, Can you hear me now? I hear you. Yes, I can hear you. Oh, okay. Okay, i got to mute myself because I'm here, so. Okay, sounds good. Um, Emmett. You, I'm sorry that my call dropped, but you said you didn't say where you were. Okay, so it's on the right. right page. It says part two or something like that. Okay, yep, number two. If a man have two yep. wives, yep. So uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 15 through 17 says, quote, If a man have two wives, one beloved and another hated. <clears throat> oh, sorry. <clears throat> I don't know what just happened. But something got caught in my throat. Um, Lydia, could you get me a drink of water just so that I don't have a problem with that again? Yeah. Thanks. Okay. And they have born. Okay, let's try again. If a man have two wives, one beloved and another hated, and they have born him children, both the beloved and the hated, and if the firstborn son be hers that was hated, then it shall be when he maketh his sons to inherit that which he hath that he may not make the son of the beloved firstborn before the son of the hated, which is indeed the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he hath, for he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. End quote from Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17. God begins this statue with... If a man have two wives, as though it might be a common thing or that it is a situation occurring enough times that there must be regulations concerning it. The Lord presents a situation in which a man has one wife that is beloved and another that is not. He then, or then he explains that the latter or her sons will not lose anything in that marriage. Notice also that God calls them both wives. If he calls them so than they were so. If it would have been an evil situation, he would not have designated them as wives in a marriage relationship. Also, notice that if the second wife or the first son, that son was to inherit the rights of the family, even though the first wife had sons afterwards. God recognizes the legitimacy of the children by the second wife just as much as the first. I'm just going to take a sip of water. Thanks. Okay. Both of the marriage, both the marriage of the second wife and the children of the second wife are divinely approved. It cannot be made any more plain or simple. However, if a man have two wives today, the man would probably be called an adulterer and the second wife an adulteress. Our laws would make them the men the man a felon. The courts, both civil and ecclesiastical, would pronounce the second marriage null and void, and the children would be bastardized. 
People in general raise their hands and howl that it is wickedness and outrageous. Little wonder that Paul wrote, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19. That which is esteemed as an abomination to man is right before God, and that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination, or it just says is abomination in the sight of God. Luke sixteen fifteen. So said Jesus Christ, so said the laws of Moses. Okay, and we're on page 82 now. The Lord didn't rebuke the man for having two wives. Partially, or partiality, partiality, was the sin. If he must pay a double portion to the wife that was in disfavor, he would think more about his partiality and probably try to remedy it. The Lord was not partial in regard to wives or children. He didn't say the first wife was rightful and the others were illegal or not entitled to an inheritance. The Lord wanted and children in polygamy to receive fairly and equally the inheritance. And this was why he made this law. It was to include wives living divorced or dead, and even those who would yet come into a man's family. It is the duty of a man who takes several wives to impartially, now they're using that word instead, which is what I thought it was the first time, sorry. I need a better light. Okay, it is the duty of a man who takes several wives to impartially look after the welfare of each. And this impartiality applies also to their inherent inherent rights. This is one of the first laws governing plural marriage that the Lord has established. Martin Luther comments on this law in Luther's works, uh, volume 9, page 121. I just want something that's flat, Odia. Thank you. Uh, Luther's works, volume 9, page 121, quote, Thirdly, he sets up a law, the law concerning the two wives and their issue. Lest an account of his affection and love, the husband assign, the husband assign the birthright to the son of the beloved, even though he is not the firstborn. The right of the primogenitor was the noblest and highest honor of children. For it came about, not by the will of man, as marriage was a captive, but by the blessing of heaven, where there is no respect of persons. Therefore, it should not be transferred arbitrarily or changed according to the caprice of a lover or a loved one. Thus, the general principle of this law is what God's man should not remove. This law was quite strict since it prevented cruelty towards the hated wife as well as favoritism toward the beloved one. To put aside vengefulness and partiality is no small virtue. Yes, it is impossible by nature. Therefore, that which lies beyond both the will and the power of malice is squeezed out by law and force. Here you see, therefore, that polygamy is permitted by law. End quote. From Luther's Works, Volume 9, page 121. Thus, the Mosaic Law laws of God did not punish men for taking more than one wife, but rather God gave these laws to instruct men on how to divide their gifts, inheritances, and their attentions among their wives and children. Could anyone think for a moment 
that God would give such laws to stop polygamy. Such a situation would be like a legislator who made laws to prevent stealing by instructing thieves on how they should divide their loot. If God wanted to stop polygamy, he never would have made laws such as these. Some men by nature were more favorable to certain wives than others. In some cases, however, it might not be so much the man's fault as the woman's, for some women may be kind while others are critical. One obedient, another unruly, one generous, but another greedy, etc. Yet God makes this a general rule without any optional conditions. The man has an obligation in his plural marriage, and God does not want any favoritism. Page 84. It was not an easy obligation, as we learn in the case of some great men, such as Jacob. Of Jacob's two wives, one was beloved and the other was not. Leah is described as tender-eyed and was contrasted in appearance by her sister Rachel, who was beautiful to behold. Now, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah and apparently let it be known because the Lord saw that Leah was hated. That's Genesis 29:1. Because of this, the Lord showed favor to Leah more than Rachel, because he blessed her with four sons, but Rachel remained barren for many years. There is evidence of Leah's craving for Jacob's love, and she had to bargain with Rachel for the privilege of lying with her own husband. Genesis chapter 30, verse 14 through 18. But she managed to obtain six sons and one daughter. Jacob once showed his favoritism by putting Leah ahead of Rachel in a caravan to keep Rachel away from Esau, whom he feared. But perhaps it balanced out in the end. Possibly the burial of two wives, of the two wives of Jacob, is more significant than anything else. Rachel, whom he had seemingly favored throughout his life, was buried in a tomb near Bethlehem. The place is still marked today. But Leah was burned or buried in the family burial site at Machpelah, where Jacob himself chose to be buried. That's in Zondervan's Encyclopedia of the Bible, Volume 3, page 900. Jacob may have favored Rachel more than Leah, so God favored Leah the most in respect to her children. Judah, her fourth son, was the one through whom David and Christ were born. Yet we should not fail to mention that Rachel and Joseph and Benjamin, showing that God did honor both wives in their plural marriage to Jacob by giving them such choice sons. We're on page 85 now, number three, to a dead brother's widow. I'm just checking to see if there's anything that you had to say about that. I don't think he's back in service enough to talk. Okay. Um, Number three, marriage to a dead brother's widow. If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in under her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn, which she beareth, shall succeed in the name of his brother, which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. That's Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 through 6. This Leverite, Leverite marriage, so termed by the Jews, was a very important law in Israel, and there were several reasons for its practice. A brother marrying the widow of his dead brother was one of the ancient customs of Israel. The Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 through 10, 
provided for the possibility and necessity at the death of one brother to have his childless wife marry one of the surviving brothers. The first son of this union was to be regarded as the son of the dead brother. The purpose of the deliberate marriage was, number one, to prevent the name of the dead brother from being put out of Israel, Deuteronomy 25.6. Number two, to restore the name of the dead to his inheritance. Uh, that's Ruth 4, 5. Now we're on page 86. And number three, to keep the family property intact. That comes from Zondervan's Encyclopedia of the Bible, Volume 4, page 99. If the brother of the deceased was already married, it did not relieve him from the responsibility of complying with that law. He was under the direct order of God to marry the widow of his brother to raise up a son unto him, that his name be not put out of Israel. A man didn't have much choice in the matter if he honored God's law. But suppose that the surviving brother had no wife at the time of his, the time his brother died. <clears throat> the law said he must marry his brother's widow anyway and raise up a son for the inheritance of his brother. But what about his own posterity and his own name? Under this principle, he was also free to marry another wife or wives and raise up another family in addition. So this law of plural marriage was instituted so in both situations children could perpetuate their names in Israel. It is plain to see that this law was general, is general in its application. It was not limited to unmarried men. It does not say her husband's brother shall take her to wife if he has no wife. There is no if or any other ex exemption. It included both married and unmarried men. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give accounts of the Savior and the Sadducees speaking of the statute, but none of them gave any statement about changing or voiding it. The foremost Bible authority, Dr. Adam Clark, like most ministers of today, completely skipped over this text in the his commentary in on the Bible, page 87. The continuation of a man's name and his property was considered a great blessing. David said, the children of thy, the Lord, servant, shall continue, and their seed shall be established before thee. That's Psalms 102, verse 28. To have that chain of posterity broken by death was a calamity. Therefore, the Lord made provisions in such conditions if the deceased had no brother living. It then fell upon the nearest relative to marry the widow. An example of this is given in the book of Ruth. Her husband was dead, and she had no children, nor any brother to marry her. Boaz, her husband's uncle, took Ruth for his wife in order to comply with this law. The scripture said it was done to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. That's Ruth chapter 4, verse 10. Remember that Boaz and Ruth became the great-grandparents of David, the ancient patriarchs before Moses also understood practice and practiced this law. For example, Judah had three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Er married a girl named Tamar. But because of his wickedness, Er died in his youth without a child. The father Judah knew the law of God in this regard and explained it to his son Onan. This is Genesis chapter 38, verse 8 through 10, quote, And Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife and marry her and raise up a seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his. He married her but refused to give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. 
That's Genesis chapter 38, verse 8 through 10. Now we're on page 88. At this time, Shelah was too young to marry Tamar. So Judah required her to remain a widow at her father's house until Shelah was grown. This was the law of God among the patriarchs, even before it was repeated by Moses. More on Judah and Tamar is discussed later in this chapter. So God commanded the living brother to marry the widow of his deceased brother. Would God command his people in this law to enter polygamy if it were wrong and then punish them for doing it? How peculiar to believe that men were told they would be punished if they did not keep this law and then curse them because they did keep it. This is a clear and undisputed law that sanctioned polygamy. Number four, marriage to foreign women. Did you have anything that you wanted to say or add to that? No, I'm just getting loaded here, or, well, getting my tickets so I can get out of, out of here. Okay. I'm heading I just to want to make sure because we're on number four. Oh, you are? Yeah. Way far away? <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and, well, um, I was on. talking to Kent uh, for a little bit because he was trying to talk to me. <laughs> Finally uh-huh. told him I had to get off and get on to the show. But, like, all these oh, okay. things that you're talking about right now are really important. And yeah, there's the nothing new. Like, we've heard it before. Well, I know we have heard it before, but we are hoping to reach people who have not heard it before. Hold on, off scale. Anyway, but like, you know, all of these things were important. God never condemned polygamy other than he instructed them not to multiply wives. So um, I know he did condemn it, uh, condemn multiplying wives in the Book of Mormon, um, but that doesn't that doesn't contradict what God shared in uh, that doesn't contradict what God shared in the Torah, you know. So, and the other thing too, it drives me insane. Like these people want to say, "Oh well, God, uh, He nailed the Torah to the cross." Well, but then they pick and choose, like, well, oh, you, you know the Torah to the cross, but uh, we still got to keep these other laws. Well, um, I'm sorry, you can't have it both ways. Did he nail tithing to the cross? Did he nail the Sabbath observance, or observance yeah, to the cross? You know, like, what other things do, like, modern Christians want to sit there and say, oh, he nailed it to the cross, but then they'll, like, then they'll say, then I don't, I don't think they understand that, like, there was, no two, there was no New Testament when Jesus Christ was teaching. There was no New Testament when Paul was teaching. Everything that they taught came out of the Torah, everything. So, yeah, he fulfilled the law that he lived perfectly. That's what it means to fulfill the law. And he, um, you know, he fulfilled the sacrifice, too, like the... The atonement sacrifice. So that, that that doesn't need to be done anymore. But like the foundation of the higher law, it rests on the lower law, which is the law of Moses. 
So uh, the only thing I have against the law of Moses is that the Jews added things to the Torah, which were not part of the original law. And the only way you figure that out is by revelation, because the 613 laws are not all from God. Some of them are from the mind and heart of a horrible little brat king named Josiah, who the Bible praises, but in actuality, what Josiah did laid the foundation for the destruction of Jerusalem that would come under uh, under King Zedekiah, I think it was, later on, or Zephaniah or somebody. Anyway, but, um, yeah, like the whole thing, like all of religion is full of crap that people have done to try to, like, modify God's law to make make something out of nothing or to make something that was important into nothing. So, anyway... Go ahead, Kim. I'll mute myself. Okay. Um, remember how I told you that uh, Amberly said she had a headache that didn't feel good or something? Yeah. She's been punked out sleeping for I don't even know how long since before I got here. Oh. She's exhausted. Well. <laughs> so there's that, um, too. Just saying. <laughs> so she might be staying home tomorrow. That is what I'm thinking. Like she's got all of the things going on. Okay. Well, she knows where she can see uh, if she needs me to wake up yeah, and help said. her with things. So, okay, I'll uh, mute myself. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Here we are. When thou goest forth to war against thine enemies, and the Lord thy God hath delivered them into shine hands, and thou hast, that might be supposed to be say thine, but it says shine, and thou hast taken them captive, and seest among the captives a beautiful woman that has... Does S-I-O-N? No, it says S-H-I-N-E, shine. Oh. Well, I <laughs> yeah, don't know if you know like, this or not. I don't know. But, mm-hmm. um... In Greek, they would uh, write it cyan with an S instead of a Z. So sometimes when you see it, it's not a a typo. It's just that's the way they wrote it in Greek. So, well, that's how it transliterates in Greek. Greek letters, whatever, it's all weird. But anyway, go ahead. Okay. Uh, This is from Deuteronomy 21, verse 10 through 13. Quote, when thou goest forth to war against thine enemies, and the Lord thy God hath delivered them into shine hands, and thou hast taken them captive, and seest among the captives a beautiful woman, and hast desire unto her that thou wouldest have her to thy wife, then thou shalt bring her name to thine house, and she shall have her head, and tear her nails, and she shall put the raiment of her captivity from off her, and shall remain in thine house, and bewail her father and her mother a full month, and after that shalt go in unto her, and be her husband, and she shall be thy wife. Deuteronomy 21, verse 10 through 13. It is quickly perceived that when this statue was given, it did not say if an unmarried man goes to war. It merely said, when thou goest forth to war. This is a general mandate, which 
is applicable to all the men in Israel. Similarly, it is the language of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, etc. This was a law given to a nation that practiced monogamy and polygamy and applied both to married and unmarried men. The only conditions upon which such a marriage was predicated was that she must shave her head, pare her nails, and mourn for a month. Then whoever had taken her as a captive was free to marry her. Also, notice that whoever chose her for a wife was to bring her home to thine house. Yes, that's where it corrects it, to thine instead of thine house. Bring her home to thine house, which seems like the man might already have a home of his own. If anything, this law seemed to be bent more towards married men than it did single ones. Most of the soldiers in ancient Israel were married men. I don't know, that seems like a kind of weak argument. But anyways, um, Can you number five. I don't understand what you just said. I just said that kind of seems like a weak argument. I mean, compared to all the well, other I know, things that we've already discussed. Well, I know, but I didn't hear what you just read because you started to mumble. Can you About repeat whatever home? that... I don't know what you just read, so I don't know what it was that I didn't just hear. That's what okay. I'm saying. You were mumbling. I'm so, asking like, you, you, like, how long did you not hear? Just that last part. Oh, my gosh. It was just that okay. last part. Okay, also notice that... I also noticed that that whoever chose her for a wife was to bring her home to thine house, which seems like the man might already have a home of his own. If anything, this law seemed to be bent more toward married men than it did the single ones, because most of the soldiers in ancient Israel were married men. Oh, that's interesting, because, like, what, you can't... Well, most of the people in ancient Israel would get betrothed when they were young, like young... You know, so, um, and it was the duty of the, I think it was the duty of the son's uh, parents to help build a house for the kids and his betrothed. So I think, I think for the most part, like, well, I do know this uh, beyond speculation, um, that it was like, Worse than murder to uh, to uh, to not marry. So any any boy was um, already set apart to who he was going to bury. So you know uh, Tevia and Fiddler uh, on the Roof. Kim. Yeah, I do. Yep. Yeah, remember the song Matchmaker. Yes. <laughs> That was a real thing. Matchmaker, matchmaker, find me a husband, whatever. Anyway, but like they basically... Yeah, (laughs) find me a catch. (laughs) Gotta love Tevia. Well, that was Tevia's daughter, but anyway. Um, But that was a thing. Like everybody, like, kind of was assigned to who they were going to marry, you know, so... Anyway, but thank you for repeating that part. I just, uh, I don't know what the deal was, but it just sounded like you were mumbling and I couldn't understand what it was you were saying. So I will be okay, myself you're welcome. now. And... 
Okay, we're on number five. Okay. Uh, It says, additional wives as the spoils of war. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman that hath known man by lying with him, but all the women children, that's what it says, all the women children that have not known a man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. That's Numbers 31, verse 17 through 18. With this law, the Lord made further provisions for polygamy among his people. This was a law allowing women who were taken as the spoils of war to be wives to the Israelites. One instance of this was a war against the Midianites. Moses told, that, told the men that of every tribe thou tribe a thousand throughout all the tribes of Israel shall ye send to war. This meant that 12,000 able-bodied men went to war against the Midianites with instructions from the Lord that they would save only the women children that have not known a man by lying with him. After the destruction of this battle, there were 32,000 women taken as their wives. See Numbers 31-35. These Israelites look back or took back home an average of nearly three wives each. This was the law of the Lord, and this was only one battle. It happened on many other occasions. There is little doubt that the Lord approved of polygamy when he gave this law to a people that already had a surplus of women. This was a law generally practiced by the Lord's people so they could increase their numbers and, um, and dominion. This law was to be observed in their battles with all other nations, not just the Midianites. For example, the Lord repeated it by saying in Deuteronomy 20, verse 10, also verses 12 through 14, quote, When thou comest nigh unto a city to fight against it, then proclaim peace unto it. And if it will make no peace with thee, but will make war against thee, then, then war against thee, then thou shalt besiege it. And when the Lord thy God hath delivered it unto thine hands, thou shalt smite every male thereof with the edge of the sword. But the women and the little ones and the cattle and all that is in the city, even all the spoil thereof, shalt thou take unto thyself. Again, that's Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10. And also verse 12 through 14. Martin Luther observed that here you see that in Luther's works, volume 9, page 210, here you see how the law permitted soldiers not only to have several wives, but even were love, where, hold on, where love demanded a Gentile woman captured in war. For when he describes them as soldiers, not newly married, it is plain that almost all the husbands who fought in the war were married no less than one year, and that these married soldiers were also allowed to take a Gentile woman to wife. What is more, if she was unsatisfactory, it was lawful to dismiss her, but she was free to marry another man, and she could not be sold or made a prostitute, for it is a violation of civil uprightness to sell or prostitute one who has been humiliated. That's Luther's Works, Volume 9, page 210. It is very evident that the Israelites obeyed this law and were able to multiply and replenish their numbers to great proportions. For instance, we read that when Moses was commanded to take the census of all males from 20 years and up to go to war, see Numbers chapter 1, verse 2 through 3, the number was 
103,550. See Numbers chapter 1, verse 46. The whole nation consisted of nearly 3 million people, but out of this number, there were only 22,273 who were firstborn children. Numbers chapter 3, verse 43. This would mean that each each woman would have 39 children. If each man had four or five wives, then it would be possible because as Jacob had four wives, yet only Reuben was called the firstborn, if each wife had only five children, then we are brought to the conclusion that each man must have had upwards of nearly eight wives. This can be reasonable only on the principle that Israelites were increasing their numbers upon the principle of plural marriages obtained through the ravages of war and obedience to this law as commanded by the Lord. Page 92. Why did the Lord command soldiers to preserve the females and not the males? Because the Lord wanted his people to have plurality of wives so they could raise up a a numerous posterity quickly by men who would teach them the laws of God. These women brought unto Israel and into the families of polygamists were subject to the rules of Israel. They soon learned that such a man was worthy of respect and honor. It did not take them very long to appreciate good men, even though they had been brought into polygamy by such catastrophic conditions. Israel then, if they would become righteous, would be blessed with every conceivable blessing. But if not, then they too would suffer or even be destroyed. Moses warned them that if they became corrupt, that they would suffer every conceivable curse that God could bring upon them. And it shall come to pass that the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and multiply you. So the Lord would re- will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught. That's Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 63. Here then, we see that the righteous causes the Lord to multiply a people but the wicked he will destroy. The wicked practice birth control, abortion, sexual promiscuity, and whoredom. The true purpose of sex is for multiplying and replenishing the earth, but now every vile, lustful, and wicked practice is promoted. Children are usually the result of an accident rather than an intent and are often thrown into orphanages or aborted. The result is a society of irreverent and wicked people suitable for destruction. If parents would send their children to some distant land to stay for several years, what sort of people would they want to care for their children? Would they want them to be sent into homes of righteous men and who are properly care for them, teaching them good conduct and and respect for God? Isn't it only reasonable to send them to a friend rather than an enemy? Wouldn't they rather trust a dozen children to a good man rather than give one child to a wicked man? If earthly parents can feel such concern for their children, how much greater are the concerns of our Heavenly Father? What must he feel about his children who are born into families who do not honor him, nor believe in righteousness, nor the laws which he has given? No wonder the Lord gave this law for taking women out of the camps of the wicked and giving them to more honorable men. No wonder God provided this regulation as part of his law for plural marriage. And now we're on number six, common or natural law of marriage. From Exodus chapter 22, verse 16. And if a man entice a maid that is not betrothed and lie with her, he shall surely endow her to be his wife. End quote from Exodus 22, verse 16. If a man find a damsel that is a virgin which is not betrothed and lay hold on her and lie with her and they be found, then the man that lay with her shall give unto the damsel's father 50 shekels of silver. Amberly, you're hitting my mic. Shekels of silver. 
and she shall be his wife because he hath humbled her. He may not put her away with all his days. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 28 through 29. This was a general law which applied to a single man or two single men, monogamous and polygamous. If anyone thinks that it is applicable only to single men, where does it say that? Do you want me to finish the little paragraph that I'm reading? Or just interrupt him in the middle? Okay, thanks. All were bound to comply with this law. In some eases, it demanded polygamy, making the man responsible for her as a wife, even if he already had one or more. Okay, go ahead. Okay, I know some people are going to be like, well, that's horrible because the men who raped the virgin shouldn't be with the virgin. That's not what it's talking about. There are laws concerning rape that apply here. This is not rape. This is if a, if a man and a woman get together and she's a virgin and she is not betrothed to anyone, then um, then because he didn't go through the proper uh, instructions on marrying her, he cannot divorce her. He has to keep her. She can't be divorced by him. Um, there were uh, provisions, I believe, where she could leave him, but he couldn't leave her. So this is to protect women from men who are just going to try to use women for sexual gratification and then think they're going to walk away from it, which is a problem that we have in our society now where men think that they can use women, um, you know, and uh, and then just walk away from them even if they do get pregnant. Well, if this law was still in effect among the Gentiles, <laughs> or if this, is law, this law was in effect among the Gentiles, um, you wouldn't see men just sleeping around with women um, because they are held to a higher standard, you know. So, um, but if he, if he does get abusive, then there was a way for her to get out of it, you know. But uh, she couldn't, uh, he couldn't just throw her to the wayside. He had to take care of her. He had to take care of her completely. For all of her life. So, anyway, that's just what I wanted to say. Because I know people will be like, oh, that's, that's like, I've heard this before. Like, people are like, oh, the law says that, that, that uh, you know, he can rape a girl and then he has to, she has to be with her rapist. And uh, that's twisting. That is the Gentile mind twisting the law of God. It doesn't have anything to do with rape. So this is consensual sex between two individuals that it's talking about. I just wanted to throw that in there before, you know, before anybody, because I've heard people um, try to say that crap about the law before, and it's just not true. So anyway, go ahead, Kim. Okay. Any man who took the virtue of a woman is under the legal obligation to accept her as a wife, and he may not put her away all his days. If this law was put into force today, it would immediately destroy all the houses of ill fame in the, in the country. 
this was, in some instances, an open door for a woman to gain a man for her husband as she enticed him to cohabitation. This was done even before Moses received this law. A prime example of being the case of Judah and Tamar, as mentioned previously in this chapter, under marriage to a dead brother's widow. Poor Tamar was having a difficult time getting a family, so she disguised herself and enticed Judah into a family situation by getting pregnant by him. She had twins born to her, and Judah acknowledged that she has been more righteous than I because that I gave her not to Sheila, my son. That's Genesis chapter 38, verse 28. One of these sons born to Judah and Tamar was Pharaoh's who was in the direct line of the ancestry of David and hence the lineage of Christ. See Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, um, page 95. This is a natural law of consent or cohabitational marriage law against which no leg- legislation ration can be made. It is mutual consent and becomes in lawful state or marriage from which the man cannot back out or divorce the woman. By this law, no man could humble a girl and then abandon her. By our present laws, a man may seduce a hundred girls and abandon them all without any penalty. By the laws of God, prostitution is impossible because the carnal knowledge relationship between a man and a woman is the law of being one flesh, and they are bound in marriage relationship by that union. Any child born that union is justified to call the man his father and the woman his mother, whether or not a civil authority pronounced them man and wife. Under these ancient laws of God, no man would dare to seduce a girl and abandon her any more than he would dare murder her. The penalty could be the same. When a woman or virgin bestows her own person to a man of her choice with intent to be his, or if she is enticed or even seduced in the lineage of the scripture, she is a legal wife of that man from that moment. He then is bound by the law to maintain, protect, and provide for her as best he can, and he cannot put her away for the rest of his life. She is stamped by the law as his wife. This put the law and power into a woman's hands to make that that man do justice and to bear his rightful responsibilities and obligations. This is the needed security and recompense which women are rightfully due. Page 96. In the scriptures, there are very few, if any, instances where ceremonial service was read over the marriage of men and women. We do have some information that in a few instances, men of the priesthood did so confirming the union of marriage, but in most cases, this was not their privilege. The scriptures do not give any particular name for the relationship of a husband and a wife in the original Hebrew or Greek, but rather man and his woman. Um, This next quote comes from Selithora. Selithora. Reverend Martin Madden, volume 1, page 229, quote, Whereas the scripture has no specific name for the, re- for the relation as husband and wife, but a man and his woman. When a man took a version, she became his woman, i.e. his property. Not by any outward ceremony, but by the surrendering of her person into this, his possession. This either anticipatively by promise or betrothing or actual by carnal knowledge, where no betrothing or espousal went before this, and this only made them one flesh, this did, and it ever must have the same effect in the sight of God, for he changeth not. End quote. From Selithora, Reverend Martin Madden, volume 1, page 329. 
So when a man took a virgin to be his wife, she became his woman, not by a civil ceremony, a magistrate's certificate, or national authorization. It was by the surrendering of her person into his possession. This was either by some promise, priesthood, sanction, betrothal, or by carnal knowledge. She became willfully and obediently his woman, and in the act of cohabitation, she becomes one flesh with him. This was a bind, as binding as any certificate or words upon a printed page or sanctioned by some court of legal term. Paul the Apostle stood this doctrine and the, pre, uh, the preponderant weight of awesome consequence if it were not obeyed. For instance, he said, What? Know ye not that which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. That's First Corinthians volume six or chapter 6, I'm sorry, uh, Verse 16. This is why he was preaching so tenaciously against fornication with harlots. Becoming one flesh with harlots is an adulteration of the flesh. This is a defilement of the body, or is the temple of God. And said he, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Paul was teaching these laws of Moses. Hold on just one second. If a man should entice more than one maid, they would both be his wives, and he would bear the responsibility of being husband to them both. We read that Jacob had a big feast after seven years of working for Rachel, but in the evening Laban took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him. And he went in unto her, and it came to pass that the, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Genesis chapter 29, verses 23 and 25. There was no way that he could back out of that marriage situation, even though it was a deception. But it all turned out well in the end because Laban gave him Rachel, his daughter, to wife also, making him legally a polygamist. Page 98. Martin Luther, commenting on this law, wrote, quote, that if a man had already become betrothed to one woman and publicly and thus entered into a true marriage, even having taken the bride to his house, and it happened that he had lain with another woman before or during the time when he, the secret betrothal existed, or even if he lay with her after the public wedding, the woman with whom he had lain together with his public bride or wife. Yet this laying together in secret in anticipation of betrothal, betrothal cannot be reckoned as whoredom, for it takes place in the name and with the intention of marriage, which spirit, intention, or name whoredom does not have. Therefore, there is a great difference between whoredom and lying together in secret with the intention of betrothed marriage. That's Luther's Works, Volume 46, pages 20, 291 and also 293. If a woman had promiscuous intercourse with different men, and any resulting child became spurious, any resulting child became sperm, and she was classed as an adulteress, and her child was classed as a bastard. See Deuteronomy 23, verse 2. This was different from a maid who was enticed by a man who was under the law to endow her to be his wife, whether she had a child from that relationship or afterwards, thus different between whoredom or adultery, and this law of marriage called common law. 
and now we're on page 99, and I feel like you have something to say. But also, we're almost done with this well, reading. Hold on, so hold, on, hold, on to... hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Guest okay. call number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. And we only have one minute left before the live streaming portion of the radio show uh, comes to a conclusion. We'll go into overdrive just for a little bit. Nobody can call in if you don't call in now. So if you do have a question or comment concerning any of the things that we're talking about tonight or anything to do with Mormonism, Judaism, or Christianity, call in now uh, or forever hold your peace. So that's 917-889-8827. Okay, I'll mute myself again. Thanks, Kim. I don't hear you, Kim. Are you still there? Okay. Okay. Yes, I'm still here. I've had muting <laughs> issues, okay? okay? I, like, thought that I muted myself, and then when you said, okay, Kim, I muted myself because I pushed the button. I was like, oh. oh, now I'm muted. So then I unmuted myself, and then I was muted on the phone. So then I was like, wait a minute. <sighs> okay. <laughs> issues. Okay. I just had some issues over that. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Continuing on, <laughs> this statue was observed for many centuries. Two other examples occurred in the lives of David and also his daughter, Tamar. God did not allow David to put Bathsheba away. This act of cohabitation made their union compete and indissoluble. In, in, yeah, dissolvable. Neither did David want to put her away. He therefore acknowledged her as a legal wife. The rape of Tamar by Amnon, Amnon, David's son, was nearly as devastating a crime as the unpardonable, as her abandonment. After Amnon had raped her, he commanded her to go. She refused and properly said, this evil in sending me away is greater than the other. That's 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 16. It was the forceful rape, humiliation, and then adding the insult of divorce all within the hour that broke her heart. These were the laws of God. Any of the laws which brought men into polygamy in the days of Abraham were the same in the days of Moses. They were the same in the days of Jesus Christ, and they should be the same in the days of Ronald Reagan or all who follow afterwards. They are unchangeable and eternal. But with man-made laws, a principle could be legal in Greece but illegal in Rome. Ten centuries later, they could be legal in Germany but illegal in England. Then again, they could be legal in the United States, and 25 years later, they could be illegal in the same court. God remains constant with his laws, but man is fickle in this. Page 100. If God tolerated, allowed, or winked at men taking more wives than one because they lived in an inferior time, a backward society, or because they lacked sufficient light to have the gospel, why then did God punish with death the woman who decided to have more than one husband? Think this over. The world loves its own laws, but usually hates the laws of God. See John 15:19 and Mark 7:9. As the world goes on in progress, it seems to go further away from the laws of God. Our progress leads to divorce, prostitution, widows, orphans, whoredom, unnatural affections, and finally, destruction. The papist, with his mass book, the Turk with his Quran, the Persian with his Zen book, the Hindu 
with the Krishna and the Chinaman with Confucianism are some of the devices that draw men away from the laws of God that gave that God gave to Moses. It is time to make another examination into the laws of God as given to Moses and the reasons why they were given. And now we're going to be on page 101, chapter 10, David, musician, soldier, king, and polygamist. Oh, that's perfect. Well, I thought we were going to have to do two parts, but we'll, we got through it. So thank you for reading, Kim and Emmett. You're welcome. I, I'm yeah, here to like hi. Hello. Power. Okay, I'm like your superpower. Yeah. I'm like your superpower when it comes to reading. Like, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this. Well, maybe we can do this because she speaks way too fast and then also <laughs> reads equally as quick. <laughs> there were a couple things yeah. in there, though, that I was like thinking, mm, I probably should have read this chapter ahead of time because my pronunciation. So I was like, yeah, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> but oh well, so. we got through. Anyway, um, what did Emmett have to say? Oh, I said, I'm here too. Hi. Oh, okay. Emmett, are you watching the studio? Yep. Anybody call in or did anybody in the chat room say anything? Uh, no one called in. I'm reloading the chat again. <laughs> okay. Okay, to see if anybody's there. Yes. Uh, doesn't look like anyone's been in the chat. Okay, so, well, we make ourselves available, so if people want to call in, that's great. If not, then that's fine, too, so. All right, well, um, I am almost pulling in to Hunter Power down by Castle Bell, so I need to get off the phone anyway, but, um, I guess we'll just go to the end of the program and play the music. So unless anybody else has anything to say, anyone? Nope, I have spoken. I'll depart. <laughs> okay. Okay, good deal. All right, well, everybody mute themselves, and I'm at cue the music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Take care. God bless, and we'll see you again tomorrow with another episode of Fundamentally Mormon. Goodbye. Cue the music, Emmett. I'm trying. It's being kind of dumb. Hold on. (laughs) 